Well, before we dive in, I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 15 this morning. Um, As we get started, I just want to share something that honestly, just kind of um, with some of the other activities that were going on the last few weeks, we really didn't get to highlight and celebrate as a church. Um, As you guys know, we have a ministry that takes place every week where a group of volunteers, and you can be part of that group of volunteers. So don't hear this as about somebody else, but about an invitation to you to join in what God is doing in our city as we partner together to go into a juvenile um, detention center called Rivard. Um, It's over on the West Bank, and um, we have the chance to go in there. And I just want you to catch the beauty of what God is doing. Um, That at the very end of one of the recent session, I'm going to kind of get some of the details a little little also, folks that are doing Rivard, be gracious with me in this moment. But essentially, my understanding of what, what transpired is that right as they're about to leave, there's there's one of the, the students that that really is expressing kind of a desire to, to respond to the gospel, like to, to, to want to be able to pray or whatever. But because of the way that it works, that once they kind of open doors and people are beginning to leave, you can't stop that real easily, you know, and then like, oh, well, we can close the door. You can come back in. So it's like, so they had to leave. And they were just like, oh, you know, like, because sometimes the kids just in the span of that week, they leave and and you may never see them again. So they come back the next week uh, to be able to find out like kind of the rest of the story, what what happened or whatever. And what happened is one of the other um, kids that was in that pod. So the way that it's kind of set up is there's somewhere between maybe six to eight kids in a pod, um, each with their own room that then share kind of a common area is that one of the other kids in the pod um, led one of the the, the kids that had the questions uh, about following Christ to Christ. And then those two led another kid to Christ um, in the pod that week. And then when they got back, they said, hey, this other kid is having questions about the gospel. Can y'all talk to him? I mean, just get the picture of how the gospel is going from one, I mean, like, yes, like, that's, I'm like, this is it. Like, this is the exciting stuff that's going on when it feels like just like the weekly grind, right? Sometimes to, to remember and to be encouraged that the gospel is going forward in the way that God's intended, that it's being given to one person and then given to another person who's then giving it to another person. And that's the beauty of this gospel is you don't have to have theological education. Um, you don't even have to understand all the ins and outs of the Bible itself in order to communicate this life-saving, life-giving, forgiveness, you know, granting gospel um, in, in even a context like this. And so I'm just so grateful for these young men that were in this pod and for how God is at work in their life. And so if you want to be part of what God is doing in the city, there are opportunities for you. There's a wall right out in this area that says care effect on it. And it represents just some of the ways that God is at work in our city. And we are wanting to discern where he is at work and join in what he is doing. So be be excited about that. Be encouraged that like the gospel is on the move um, in our city. Well, this morning, we continue in our study through 1 Timothy. Um, It's important for us to remember that at the outset of this, Paul said the the goal of our instruction in chapter 1 is love. Um, And and I'm going to go ahead and just acknowledge that as we dive into this text today, I've taken a lot of time this week um, to really just write clear exactly what I want to communicate this morning. So you guys know me when I'm typically preaching, I don't necessarily always have a podium in front of me or I'm kind of looking down at notes. Today, I'm going to be a little bit more dependent. 
it. Okay, so I'm just going to go ahead and shoot you straight. Um, so if you're like, man, he looks like he's reading a lot. I am because there is a lot here. In fact, there's part of me that was like, man, there's so much here that I wonder if I need to break this up into multiple sermons. But I'm just going to tell you, my mom is, is going through um, kind of a medical situation. And so next weekend, I'm going to be out to put in a little time with my family over in Lafayette. And then Cole and I are celebrating our 20-year anniversary the next week. Um, and so we are going to get away for a few days. So you're going to be, I'm going to be out for two Sundays. And I was like, you know what? This is not the sermon to break up with a month, you know, um, kind of gap or whatever. So we're going to go, we're going to go all in today. Okay. And, and it really is what I, what I just want to what I want us to see is the text, right? From the first day that I got here, my very first sermon was the encouragement that for us to be a biblically thriving church, we must be scripture fed. And so that is my aim today is that we, nothing changes today, um, is that we, we look at the word and the word does the work on us, that we're just trusting that God, by the power of his spirit, will guide us, will end all truth. And that it is, we go in this together that even when there's tension points, especially as it contends with like maybe cultural aspects of this that are just like, oh, this, this feels like something else, or this feels very wrong, that we lean into together and we work through it. And so I appreciate there's been several conversations that I've had this week that have enriched my life and my understanding from different perspectives. Um, and so I hope that that comes to bear even today in this sermon. But here's what I know is that this sermon is going to precipitate even more conversations and that's okay. Um, I want us to be a church that has conversations, uh, that doesn't shut one another down in a debate, but that we say, man, I've got questions about this text or I've got questions about the implications of this, um, to be able to have space for those kinds of things. So the way I titled this sermon, and I hope that it shows my hand on my understanding of this passage, is this, Elevating Women. Now, I know some people are saying, man, you just, you use that title to try to like mask what's really going on here. The reality is that this passage, in a way that we don't understand in a lot of ways, 2,000 years later, was elevating women in a significant way. And as I go in the passage today, I hope to make that clear. Even sometimes it's the benefit of international travel, of doing international missions and of working in other contexts where God is at work in the early church, to be able to see kind of like going back in history in some ways to, to cultures and contexts that are very different from ours today here in the 21st century in, in the West, um, to experience how these things would have been so jolting in their original context and how they would have been elevating women in ways that they had not experienced. And so that's my hope today. But let me ask this question. Can anyone elevate women higher than the God who perfectly designed and created women? Can anybody, can, can any of us in our efforts to, to give women all of the dignity and rights that they deserve go any higher than the God who created them and fashioned them and made them perfectly in his image? And the answer to that rhetorical question is no. And that's why it's so important that we dive into God's word to understand this thing called womanhood and manhood. And so we're gonna look at this today, but to give a foundation before I even dive into this passage is important. One verse of the Bible is more important than any other in our understanding of humanity and specifically of gender including the aspect of, of humanity called gender. If you deeply believe this verse, if you honor it, if you faithfully apply it, you will oppose all forms of slavery, historic such as chattel slavery and modern slavery like sex trafficking and human trafficking. 
you will see dignity and beauty in every human person, celebrating the diversity of skin color, hair textures, physical attributes, languages, and accents. You will celebrate the gift of gender, seeing male and female both as essential and good, equal in God-likeness, dignity, and value. But if you reject this single verse, then humanity becomes an experiment conducted by the elite. The powerful will oppress the powerless, the stronger will oppress the weaker. Historically, the suppression and oppression of women is well-documented. Today, we continue to see, like in the news, like in countries like Afghanistan, under Taliban rule that refuse to allow girls and women access to education, jobs, certain buildings, or even being seen in public without full body covering. But with one verse, God challenges the oppression of women and elevates them as equal with men in the most meaningful aspect of our existence, the very core of our identity. And this verse is found in chapter one of the Bible, Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. Write this down and never forget it. God created us male and female in his own image. God created us male and female, distinction, but commonality in his own image. This is what we share, and what we share is stronger than what would distinguish us. No meaningful study of 1 Timothy chapter 1, I mean chapter 2, verses 9 through 15 exists apart from this verse and the surrounding verses in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And I hope that you will see that all the more clearly as we look at the text. No meaningful conversation about gender can take place apart from Genesis 1 and 2. If gender is not part of God's intended design for humanity, then we have no reason to suggest that gender is good and a gift from God. If gender is not part of God's intended design for humanity, then we should join the cultural movement to rid humanity of gender altogether, to echo those who assert that gender is a prison from which we need to be freed. But if Genesis 1 and 2 hold truth concerning the gift of gender, that God has ordained gender, that both genders are equally created in God's image, meaning men do not bear more of God's image than women, nor women more of his image than men, both created by God for his glory and for our good, then we have every reason to lovingly look into the eyes of a young girl or a teenage girl and say that God created you female is good. You are created in God's own image. Your gender is a gift from God, given to you for his glory and for your flourishing. This same God who created us male and female in his own image has chosen to reveal himself, both generally and specifically. This is the second aspect that we need to like lay down and understand as we dive into this passage. All of creation reveals him. The order of the universe reveals his power and wisdom. The tender affection of a mother lion with her cubs reveals his power and yet his affections and gentleness. The power of a hurricane reveals his wrath. The pleasure of a cool breeze at the end of a summer day reveals his pleasure, his grace, his invisibility, even when present, and his effectiveness. 
I could speak all day in such general terms, but God has shown grace for thousands and thousands of years by speaking in specific ways to make himself known. This special revelation of who God is and his ways are revealed in scripture. I only know that God can be known because God's word declares that what can be known about God has been clearly seen since the creation of the world in Romans chapter one. I only understand God as the creator because his word says in Genesis 1-1 that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I only know that God is a God of justice because his word reveals a system of justice in which life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe is exacted in Exodus 21. And I only know that God is love because his word says God is love and in him is no darkness at all in 1 John. Dr. Adam Harwood writes, scripture is God's word, the primary and authoritative means of special revelation today. God reveals himself by his spirit as he illumines the hearts and minds of people as they hear and read the scriptures. Scripture is both the content and the means of revelation. So here's the next truth that I want you to write down and lock in is that scripture is God's word. Scripture is God's word. In other words, these are not the words of men about God. Their stab at trying to explain the Almighty. This is God's self-revelation of who he is and his ways and what he has done in order to save and redeem us and restore us to him in right relationship. Of what his expectations are of how we will relate to one another in this life. All of these things are revealed and made known and clear in scripture. But hear this caution as Dr. He, Dr. Hartwood continues, followers of Jesus do not study the scripture with the sole aim of becoming experts in scripture. Recall Jesus's admonition to the, relig the religious leaders in his day. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. John 5, 39 through 40. The goal of the Christian life is transformation into the image and likeness of Christ or growth in the knowledge of and love for the Lord. This means for transformation as an act of God's grace is encountering God's spirit through his word. Today on the grounds of understanding that scripture is God's word and that God created us male and female in his own image, we now turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, and I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, acknowledging that this is God who speaks to you and speaks to me and speaks to us as his people through all of time for our good and for his glory. I'm going to back up to verse 8 to keep the context clear. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works as is proper for women who profess to worship God. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. 
Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. We pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. And God, it, 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 right at the outset, God, I ask that if there's anything in which I am an heir, God, that you would remove it far from our minds. And Lord, that your word, which will remain, Father, would be the truth that orients us in this moment. God, we acknowledge that on face value, as we look at this text, Father, we have many questions, many possibly even concerns, but Lord, please, would you make these things clear by the power of your spirit as we examine your word? We thank you for the good gift of your word and we trust you, Lord, and we follow you in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Now, it's important to recall at this point that Paul was careful in chapter one to note that the goal of his instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, just as we considered verse eight last week, how Paul was in love calling the men in the church in Ephesus to stop arguing and to stop acting in anger, but instead to pray with holy hands, not hands covered in guilt from fighting with each other. So now Paul in love turns to the ladies in the church at Ephesus in order to provide leadership for God's glory and their good. These verses, along with verse eight, can be broken down into three primary groupings, verses eight through 10, and then verses 11 and 12, and then verses 13 through 15. Verse nine begins with likewise women, which means that Paul anticipates that women, just like the men, will have a priority for gathering together to worship the Lord in prayer. That priority is established for Paul for the church in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. First of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And then it's picked back up in verse 8. In verse 8, Paul identifies anger and arguments as a distraction among the men from what they are called to do, which is to worship God in prayer. He clearly calls it out. And now he turns his attention to what he knows is causing a distraction among the women from the primary purpose of worshiping God together in prayer. And that concern is a concern with outward appearance. Now, I'll never forget the conversation that I had one Sunday with a lady that was joining Trinity Baptist Church, where I served as an associate pastor for missions over in Lake Charles. As she sat, sat there and shared what was leading her to leave a church where she had been a member for over 20 years and how it was grieving her heart to have to come to this place. She said, I've been visiting a lot of churches, but I'd honestly been avoiding Trinity because this is a church for skinny people. And with tears in her eyes, she began to weep and said, I've always struggled with my weight and everyone that I know in town that's a member of this church is really thin. And she said, and I know that it's crazy to think this way, but I just really just concluded in my mind that you had to be thin and attractive to be able to fit in at this church. And she said, I'm so thankful I was wrong. Trinity was a church for everyone. There was not a body type that was required for membership. But sometimes a culture develops of which we're not aware that we can sometimes begin to communicate internally and to those outside 
that there's a certain expectation in order to really be part of the group. I bet no one at Trinity Baptist Church had ever thought or intended that a person had to be thin or attractive to fit in. But sometimes that's the culture we create. Here in verses 9 and 10, Paul is dealing with that sort of a barrier, a, a, a cultural aspect that was beginning to develop in the church that was becoming a barrier to inclusion and to unity within the body. And there's two words that really capture the heart of what he's saying here in verses 9 and 10, and they are modesty and money. Modesty and money. Let's deal with modesty. The word translated as modest clothing could also be translated as appropriate clothing. Additionally, Paul clarifies what is appropriate. He says with decency, meaning with respect or reverence. Culturally, what is considered appropriate or respectful, it changes. For example, when I was growing up, it was considered extremely disrespectful to the Lord for a man to wear a ball cap inside of the church building. I remember once when a deacon snatched my hat off my head when I was helping with VBS one summer and reprimanded me in a very harsh manner. Has anything like that ever happened to you? Somebody in the church claiming to be on the moral high ground in the name of biblical faithfulness, embarrassing you, belittling you, mistreating you, or, or maybe just plain being mean to you. Those moments sometimes leave a mark, sometimes a lasting wound. And honestly, inside my heart and mind in that moment was the immediate pushback of, God doesn't care if I wear a hat inside the church building. More than that, I, I moved into adulthood and ministry leadership and there was still part of me that, based on that very negative experience, made me want to allow or even encourage people to wear a hat to church to somehow show that this guy was wrong, that God's concerned with the heart, not the hat. But do you see how my personal experience of a negative experience began to guide my thinking more than other influences, including God's word? This passage says to women and men that God is concerned with the clothing and the fashion choices that we make. He's even more concerned with our hearts and the way that we're living, but he does care about our clothing choices as well. You know, that deacon was wrong, not because he wanted to see a young man honor the Lord, but because of the way he went about training me. Rather than harshly ripping my hat off my head, he should have gently said, as God's word instructs, Son, one of the ways we show honor to the Lord is in how we dress, even how we remove our hats to honor the Lord, to signal that we realize that we're in his presence in a special way when we gather in worship. The Lord is more concerned with the condition of your heart and the way that you're living your life. But I also want to encourage you to remove your hat when you enter the sanctuary, to join with other men in this church who do the same to show God honor. Now, you may disagree with his conclusion, but far less of us would have a problem if there was a gentleness in the way that he had instructed me rather than the embarrassing, even painful way that he went about it. Now, let me go ahead and tell you that it's when preaching passages like this about modesty that many pastors, good intentioned pastors who are trying to demonstrate courage and conviction, start making declarations about what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. In most cases, their wife and any daughters end up on the acceptable camp of modesty standards. But instead, there's another aspect of deep Christian community that I think is so important to highlight in this moment. 
in Titus, which is a, a letter much like 1 Timothy, Paul speaks about the significance of godly influence, both men to other men and women to other women. Hear what Paul says. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, so sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. Titus 2, 2 through 5. Do you see the beauty of that picture? Older women who've been walking with the Lord in godliness, encouraging, teaching the younger women what is good, pure, and loving. Most of us make fashion choices by looking at people our age and essentially saying, what are they wearing? But what if more ladies, especially the younger ladies in our church, started getting the input of a lady that was 10, 20, or 30 years, not only older than her, but further along in her relationship with Christ? Now, some people take this passage in a direction that the passage does not go into blaming women for the sexual sins that men commit, including sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and sexual assault. Men, you are responsible for your actions. Many in the church blame promiscuous dress when I would say that the real problem is men in the church training their minds to look at women and think about women in ways that are influenced more by pornography. Over 70% of men in the church today report monthly pornography use. That sort of regular influence is conditioning men to look at girls and women in a way that God fiercely opposes. The church is wrong every time it blames the victim. If she would have worn more modest clothing, then that pastor wouldn't have been so tempted. God forgive us for blaming the most vulnerable among us for what those with the greatest authority do in our positions of leadership. It's that sort of wrong thinking and wrong actions that have resulted in a total loss of trust in the ability for so-called biblically qualified men to alone serve as pastors. And it's important for all of us to acknowledge that such a loss of trust is understandable and in some ways been earned. And it will take many years of faithful ministry to rebuild that trust. But Paul not only speaks of modesty, but also of money. Chad, Paul didn't say anything about money. He just talked about really expensive hairstyles, really expensive jewelry, and really expensive clothing. Like I said, Paul not only speaks of modesty, but of money. Money can't buy you love, but in the first century, like the 21st century, money could buy you expensive hairstyles, expensive jewelry, and expensive clothing and rare colors and rare fabrics. Suddenly, gathering to worship as the church was becoming a to-do, one in which the culture was quickly shifting from opening your purse to help the poor to, where did you get that purse? Now, here's a hot take on this passage. Men, this passage is just as applicable to you as verse eight was to women in the congregation who might be stewing with anger or prone to arguments. Men love a nice watch. Men love new shoes. Men love a fresh look. And so don't think that Paul makes this, on, this admonition only for women. But the real heart of the issue has to do with unity in the body of Christ. 
If something like really nice clothes or a certain hairstyle or bling or no bling start to separate a congregation or check this, start to cause you to feel more included because you have the thing, then there is an issue. So Chad, let's talk. Should women only have straight hair? Is that the application of this passage? Does it only have to be straight at church or straight all the time? Are pearl necklaces sinful? What about silver necklaces? Are those okay because the Bible just says gold? How much can I spend on a pair of shoes before I sin? How much can I spend on a suit, a dress, a shirt, a pair of pants, etc.? I get it. I often hear clarity is kindness, and you know what? It's true. So let me be as clear from the text as I can possibly be. If you, male or female, profess to worship God, then your life should be decked out in good works because that is what is fitting. Verse 10, but with good works as is proper for women who profess to worship God. Let me put it this way. If your life is naked of good works, but covered in glitz and glam, you are not appropriately dressed. If your life is naked of good works, but covered in designer jeans and the latest high tops, you are not appropriately dressed. If your life is naked of good works, but covered in bling, then you are not appropriately dressed. Don't miss the main point. Our lives as followers of Jesus Christ are to be adorned with good works that he prepared ahead of time for us to do. I mean, he's already got it scheduled, all the tools there by the power of his Holy Spirit for you to do it, to do the good works that he's designed your life to do. And that is to be the beauty of our lives, not our external appearance that we can purchase at a store not distracted with impressing each other or trying to fit in. Instead, the good work of removing any barrier that might cause a person to feel excluded from the body of Christ should be on our minds as we gather together to worship God. But just as quickly as I utter those words, the only downside to technology, it may seem that I need to eat those words because the text shifts to what many consider today to be a barrier to half of the human population from being fully embraced in the church. Hear God's word in verses 11 and 12. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. Now, here's what we think. Certainly, this must mean something other than what it says. That's what many of us immediately take. I get it. I truly get it. But what's clear in these two verses are two truths. Number one, a woman is not to be denied the ability to grow in the knowledge of the word. A woman is not to be denied the ability to grow in the knowledge of the word. And second, a woman is not to provide authoritative teaching over a man from the word. These, these are the things that are clear in the text. A woman is not to be denied the ability to grow in the knowledge of the word, and a woman is not to provide authoritative teaching over a man from the word. So let's talk about the first one. A woman is not to be denied the ability to grow in the knowledge of the word. N.T. Wright, in his commentary, appropriately captions this section of 1 Timothy this way. Women must be allowed to be learners. Well-documented in the first century was the reality that in Jewish context, women 
were almost always excluded from learning environments. Paul says that women, as a full disciple of Jesus Christ, ought not to be denied the great joy of receiving and being instructed in the word. Now, we might quickly assume that today we have no problem with this passage. But in how many churches is something like childcare relegated to women alone in order for men to be able to gather in the sanctuary to hear instruction in the word? You see, I encourage us, even in practical ways here at First Baptist New Orleans, for us to be faithful in sharing in the load of caring for our children so that women and mothers are not removed consistently from time of being instructed and taught in the word, but that that responsibility is shared. The next phrase is quietly. Now, some translations read silently. Like if you have a King James version, it says silently. Now, some throughout the years, an effort of biblical faithfulness, and this shows you the importance of translations. As a reminder, the the Bible was written originally in a couple of languages. The primary two are Hebrew and Greek. There's some Aramaic in the Bible, but very little. And so it's important for us to understand that the work of translating from one language, an ancient language, into modern English so that we can read it in an accessible way is is a work. There's a lot that goes into it a lot of scholarly work that goes into it. And so even words like quietly or silently, while there might be the semantic domain for that word, you can see how the application begins to come out. Because some reading their King James Version Bible through the years and effort of biblical faithfulness have prohibited women from speaking in the sanctuary at all. Women have historically been excluded from reading scripture, voicing prayers, sharing testimony, and other forms of of worship leadership in the hope for obedience to this verse and one in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Remember the context. Church was mostly happening in homes at this point in Christian history. No, No church buildings had been constructed at this point. Perhaps some synagogues were beginning to have more of a Christian thrust, depending on the location and the priest. But overall, certainly in Ephesus, you have house churches. Think tight space. Think cultural conditions in which men spent time with men and women spent time with women. Perhaps women in one area, men in another. Paul is instructing Timothy that when it comes time for authoritative instruction in the word, that everyone needs to be giving their attention to the one who is speaking, exactly like you are doing in this room today. In fact, church buildings continue to be built to elevate the teaching and instruction that will come from a preacher of the word. While we might be tempted to hear Paul telling women to shut their mouths, he is instead crafting an environment where women and men will be able to learn and to learn together. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. Again, this is the exact phrase, the same full submission that every believer is to have to the word of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13, Paul uses the same word to describe the sort of obedience or full submission that we should all have to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is not saying, Paul is saying not only is a woman to have access to the teachings of Christ, but she is also to do exactly as Christ has commanded in the Great Commission to observe all that he has commanded. Ladies, the call of Christ to make disciples of all nations rests upon your life in the same way that it does upon a man's life. Married couples, you are called as husband and wife to make disciples of all nations. 
Divorced men and women, you are called to make disciples of all nations. Single parents, you are called to make disciples of all nations. But to all, you will not successfully do so apart from instruction in the word. The need for all women disciples and all men disciples to know, study, understand, and apply the scriptures is paramount in the task of making disciples of all nations. The Bible says so right here. But as we bring this gospel, both men and women, to all nations in order to make disciples and plant churches, Paul provides clarity for whom God is ordained to lead his church and how he is ordained for his church to be led. Verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. This brings us to that second truth. A woman is not to provide authoritative teaching over a man from the word. This is the point when I'm going to lean into how God wired me, Chad Gilbert, and tell you what I'm not gonna do at this moment. First, I'm not gonna tackle every intellectual argument about this passage. For one, they are seemingly innumerable. Literally, books upon books and articles upon articles have been written on just verse 12. Secondly, such is the context of kind of going into that deep dive of really a seminar on this subject, which may be fitting following a sermon like this for those who desire to go deeper in their understanding of this matter. Second, I'm not going to throw rocks at those with whom I disagree. Smart, thoughtful believers have proposed various possibilities of this text in the historical context of Ephesus. I find personally many of these unconvincing, but I'm not going to say that these individuals are intentionally trying to mislead believers or that they have some unbiblical agenda. I desire to extend to them the same respect that I hope that they'll extend to me. I trust they sincerely come to a different conclusion just as Presbyterians sincerely come to a different conclusion on infant baptism than what I conclude. I respect them while respectfully disagreeing. Thirdly, I'm not going to speak very long on this point because wounds are already freshly opened and I desire to be the kind of shepherd that binds up the wounded because that's the kind of shepherd that Jesus is, especially when the wounded are truly trying to seek to discern the voice of the good shepherd in his word. I wanna remind us all that cultural influences, that culture influences which part of these verses are most difficult for us to accept. I'm so thankful for recent mission trips. I'm just gonna say the country because you know we don't have a trip scheduled at this point, but we've been to Morocco in North Africa. And one of the things that we've witnessed as we've gone into this part of North Africa with uh, the early church, I mean, like this is a very young church, very, you know, very few believers. And so like it, these, these believers as they're gathering, they are gathering in a context where the men gather with the men and the women gather with the women. Now, there is no time together when they are all in the same room being instructed in the word right now. The idea that men and women should learn in the same environment right now for them would be a very difficult teaching. But the instruction that women are to not teach or have authority over men is very easy for them to accept. No problem. That's today, 2023 in North Africa. 
Their entire culture today is built around such gender distinctives. But just cross the Atlantic Ocean and come to America and the notion that men and women should be able to learn together in a similar environment with equal access to the teachings of the Bible is met with, of course, what are we in the dark ages? And the instruction that women are not to teach or have authority over a man is met, well, obviously this means something other than what it says, because there's no way that the same Jesus who had women disciples would ever oppress or marginalize women by limiting them in any way. Listen, these are, I just want you to feel the cultural distinctives there. It's just flip-flop. One, one's going to have a hard time with one, and we're having a hard time with another. I know our context. But understand this, regardless of the culture into which the teachings of the Bible are introduced and applied, they are always difficult, always difficult in one way or another when they challenge normative ways of thinking and living. So as we dive into these final verses, there's several observations that will be key in this moment. Number one, teaching and authority are closely related in the church. Teaching and authority are closely related in the church. Number two, God has ordained that overseers, pastors, and elders be able to teach the church. And you say, Chad, that's not in our text today. That is only two verses later in chapter three. And it's important for us to remember that Paul did not write in chapter and verse. That was something that we added much later in order to find our way through the Bible. So this is just Paul writing, okay? So just think one thought going right into the next. And so it's important for us to bring that context back in this passage. Number three, this design, what, what, what Paul is describing here, is grounded in the biblical teaching of creation and the fall. This design is grounded in the biblical teaching of creation and the fall. And then number four, Jesus, not gender, is the only way to be saved. Jesus, not gender, is the only way to be saved. So first, teaching and authority are closely related in the church. While teaching and authority are listed separately in this passage, not much distinction is explainable in the absence of hierarchical structures in the first century. In other words, they didn't have the, think about Catholic church, the Pope and then cardinals and then bishops and then archbishops. And you have just these huge structures going all the way down to then just the local parish and the priest or whatever. Those things didn't exist. The only way that authority was being exercised in the church was through the teaching of the word. And so that's important for us to rekindle in our understanding this moment, that these two things were not widely separated. They went together. The ability to instruct was accomplished through teaching. Thus, the danger of false teaching, which Paul writes about in almost every letter. A person, if they were believing false teaching, was submitting themselves to another authority than the authority found in the right teaching of God's word. God continues right now to exercise authority over his church through the teaching of his word. That is why this moment of proclamation is essential and supreme. We are those who submit our will to his will being done. We discern his will by his spirit according to his word. In other words, the preaching and teaching of God's word is how we come to honor and submit our lives to God's authority. Second, God has ordained that overseers slash pastors slash elders be able to teach the church. Just a few sentences after verse 12, Paul is going to begin talking about the qualifications of an overseer. 
One of those qualifications, which is seen as supreme in leading God's people, is this, able to teach. Seen in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. The same requirement is seen again in a very similar passage over in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, where the overseer will encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. Now, other passages could be listed at this point to help us understand the interchangeable usage of the Bible titles of overseer, pastor, elder. And in this church, we use the word pastor, but we could just as faithfully use words like overseer or elder. When God's word says that a woman may not teach or have authority over a man, paired with the clear expectation that pastors, overseers, elders will teach in an authoritative manner the word of God, then it's not hard to see in clear terms why the office of pastor, overseer, elder is limited to biblically qualified men. As I said before, thoughtful Christians and scholars raise objections to that conclusion. But as your pastor, I find those arguments unconvincing. And the reason I find them unconvincing is primarily because of verses 13 and 14, which brings us to the third observation of this text. Third, this design is grounded in the biblical teaching of creation and the fall. Paul writes, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. Now, before you think Paul is really doing some gymnastics to use Genesis 2 to make his point, I want you to consider Jesus when he is questioned about divorce, being told that elsewhere in the Bible, God allowed certificates of divorce to be written So divorce on demand was somehow God-ordained. Jesus responds in Matthew 19, verses four through six, haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? He also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Again, quoting from Genesis chapter two. So they are no longer, Jesus says, two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is quoting Genesis 2, reminding them that God's intention with creation is still in effect. Paul picks up the same hermeneutic, the same way of understanding the Bible, and clearly makes the case that Adam was formed first, then Eve. But what's the point? The point is better seen in the text of Genesis 2, where God's word says, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord had instructed, had, had entrusted authoritative instruction to Adam, which he was both to personally obey and also to teach Eve. But we all know that he failed. For as the next verse reminds us in 1 Timothy, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. We are thrust back into Genesis but not the creation account, but the account of the fall. 
Hear God's word from Genesis chapter three, verses one through seven. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, listen to this, who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Paul is clear in the book of Romans that Adam, Adam is held responsible for sin entering the human race. Romans chapter five makes an incredible argument concerning Adam, not Eve, as how sin entered in order to contrast with Jesus and how salvation enters. Death entered through one man, life enters through one man, and that one man is Christ. So what is Paul's point in bringing up Eve in this passage? Very likely from the context to emphasize the point that biblically qualified men have been entrusted with the authoritative teaching of God's word in order to obey it, to teach it, and to refute those who contradict it. If this is indeed God's intended design for his church, then our question should immediately be, well, then what constitutes a biblically qualified man who can serve as an overseer, pastor, elder? And that takes us directly into chapter three. See the logical sequence of this passage, which we will pick up in a couple of weeks. Hold on, Chad, you missed verse 15. No, I simply saved the best for last. Verse 15 says, but she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. Now, at face value, it seems to say that women will go to heaven if they have babies. I get it. The only problem with that interpretation is the rest of the Bible, especially passages that speak of the goodness of singleness. Listen, don't let anyone ever tell you that you are half a person until you find your other half. You are 100% whole in Christ Jesus. And passages that clearly teach that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by works. So what then does this passage mean? Again, where is Paul? Paul is in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So it's important for us to follow his sequence and go back to Genesis 3. The fall has occurred and now God is giving the consequence of sin but not without the promise of redemption. Here, Genesis 3.15, is God spoke to the serpent about his one day defeat. God says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, the she is singular, meaning that Paul is talking about Eve. Eve would one day be saved through the birth of a child, a child who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. Much is made of genealogies throughout the Bible, contending and connecting one generation of Adam and Eve to the next. 
all the way until we read the words in Matthew and in Luke that Jesus is the promised child, the baby born of a virgin who came to save sinners, sinners like Adam and Eve, sinners like you and me, that when it comes and changes our hearts should be evidenced in how we continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. You see, the text shifts from the singular of Eve to the plural, referring to women, but truly referring to us all. And this leads us to our final observation. Jesus, not gender, is the only way to be saved. Faith, love, holiness, good sense, and so much more are available to all in Christ and in Christ alone. Being the most powerful man or the most powerful woman will not save you from your sins or give you peace with God. Becoming another gender in order to find full identity and freedom is the cunning work of the deceiver because full identity and freedom are only found in Christ. Paul makes abundantly clear in Galatians chapter three that men are not more saved than women nor women more saved than men. We have equal participation in the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we celebrate the gift of gender as God ordained and good We honor one another as men and women, pursuing full participation in the body of Christ within the spiritual gifting and the biblical parameters that God himself has given us in his word. And we elevate this gospel, this gospel hope that is for all people, for the flourishing of our neighborhoods, for New Orleans and all nations. And it is this gospel that radically changes everything about you and me and how we love one another in this place. And I want you to know that that sort of life change, that radical way of seeing humanity is defined by God, of elevating each gender in right ways and honoring and respecting one another is found and pursued and lived in the gospel. And this gospel is extended to you today. Let me pray with me. Father, I pray that in these moments, that as we've just heard your word, God, I pray that anything where I was off, Lord, please, would you intercede by your goodness and grace, God. But Lord, my confidence is in your word because I know that your word is good. And I know, Father, that your word is unchanging and that it reveals you, the holy God. And so, Lord, please, today, through the preaching of your word, would you mend wounds, Would you bind up the wounded? Father, would you lead us into paths of righteousness for your name's sake? Lord, I pray for the one today that maybe through a passage that no one would ever expect for someone to come to faith in Jesus Christ, God, that you would use your word to draw all men and women, boys and girls to yourself. Lord, today, what we see ultimately is Jesus and his goodness for us, his good design over his church, and his hope, his hope for lordship in our lives, each and every one of us. So Lord, today, if there's anyone in this room who has never given their life to you today, God, I pray would be the day they give their life to you and trust and obedience. I'm gonna invite for everyone to stand in this moment and we're gonna sing a song that really captures the reality. And we're coming back to the heart of worship. And listen, the core of worship is obedience to God's word. Obedience is lived out in good works. But if you're here today 
and you're in need of prayer, you're here today and you wanna respond to this gospel of Jesus Christ, I'll be standing right here and would love to have the opportunity to pray with you as we conclude this time of worship together.